This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. Hello, this is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, where we make sense of a week of financial and business news and then across the world to the week ahead. I'm Nick Howard. Joining me is Oanda Senior Market Analyst Craig Earlham. Craig, good to speak to you as always. Let's kick off with the UK, which this week we've learned is now in over £2 trillion worth of public debt, a bigger sum than the country's GDP. Just to kick off, what impact does a number like that actually make? Well, I mean, ordinarily, it would have a great impact. Uh, I mean, it's obviously quite significant. I think these are more headline makers, though, than they are actual difference makers, because whether it's 1.99 trillion or 2 trillion doesn't really make a difference. But if you're writing a story, obviously, the shock factor of 2 trillion certainly uh, becomes a a much bigger deal. Well, I'm the journalist's love of a big round number. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I think we all do. <laughs> Ultimately, we seem we, we get quite attached to these big round numbers on a regular basis. It is still a big deal, but the, the difficulty we obviously have right now is that a lot of countries are seeing their debt balloon because we are in the midst of a, a global pandemic, and therefore many of these governments right now are being forced to spend a lot more uh, cash than they were otherwise previously intending to do so. And this is coming after a decade when the mantra seems to have been actual, actually it's fiscal responsibility which will get us back on track rather than uh, fiscal splurges. And it seems that we've gone full 180, although this is naturally a very different crisis to what we've just previously dealt with. You're right, we've lived through a decade of politicians setting out their stall on fiscal responsibility, on cussing the deficit, cussing public debt. And yet... We're now going into a period where I suspect politicians are not going to be punished for the debt that they have run up in the same way that uh, the previous generation of politicians were because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you'd probably expect to find the opposite if politicians don't go to the extremes that they are currently doing. They'll actually be punished for not doing enough to support us during one, during a completely unprecedented crisis uh, that many of us will hopefully never have to deal with. Uh, again, the the measures which we've seen taken are are the likes of which we're, we are unlikely to be seen again. We're, we're unlikely to see the kind of job support schemes that we've seen been put in place, subsidising salaries to the tune of 80%. We're unlikely, you look at the UK with the kind of eat out to help out uh, help out to eat out scheme. The all of these things that we're seeing are very much um, unique to this particular issue. Uh, and as I say, you look at you compare this to a, a decade ago. The crisis was viewed very differently. It was viewed as uh, as a crisis almost of um, of of our own making, uh, not the general public per se, uh, but of uh, of excess, uh, which is what you've seen plenty of times um, in the past. And therefore, they obviously believed that it required a different solution, and that in itself is extremely up for debate. Whereas this is very different. This is this is a global pandemic, which has forced shops to close and forced healthy businesses to become potentially extremely unhealthy overnight and forced potential uh, mass unemployment on us which needed intervention so i think yeah this time it, it is that we are getting a, a completely different response from policymakers, and i think they'd been very very much punished had they not taken this exact response 
So from a financial point of view, what's interesting about these big numbers when it comes to public debt is the lack of impact it seems to have on government bonds. Do you think that we are going to see political policy um, over the next few years cutting debt? Or are you saying that we're going to be in these kind of debt levels for a while? What kind of impact would that have? It's going to be really difficult because ultimately, uh, again, we have seen governments around the world effectively looking to try and trim the fat uh, off the uh, off the off spending for, uh, in order to try and regain that kind of fit, that that reduce those fiscal deficits in order to try and turn a fiscal surplus and in order to try and reduce debt that way. And again, it's very much up to debate how much you've been trimming the fat and how much has been um, actually hitting the flesh. Uh, but the the problem that they have is that there there is no real more, you can't you, the, the argument that there's more fat to just continue to trim isn't really a sustainable argument. So I do think there may actually be um, efforts to grow our way out of this out of this problem and I know my colleague in uh, uh, over in Jakarta uh, Jeff who's been on the podcast before uh, is it seems to be a firm believer that it's actually going to be uh, there's going to be attempts to try and almost inflate our way out of this issue which brings obviously problems itself but I don't think the the same approach to the last um, to the last crisis in terms of debt reduction is going to be useful this time just simply because if the if there was an enormous amount of left fat left to be trimmed, I think they would have tried to do that over the course of the last decade. You'd have to wonder where it is exactly they can make those cost savings. I think this time it's going to have to be a case of the more people you have in work, uh, the better chance that we have of actually reducing our debt. And it's just going to have to accept that debt levels aren't going to be at 60% of GDP for an awfully long time uh, and that central banks are going to remain accommodated for an awfully long time because what's made this doable, what's kept bond yields low, is the fact that there is an enormous amount of liquidity floating around the system. We've got trillions of dollars uh, of uh, of central bank support flowing around the system, uh, which has enabled yields to stay low intentionally. Uh, and I think policymakers are going to have to accept that that's going that kind of support is going to have to remain here for a sustainable amount of time. I do have more that I want to talk about in terms of UK stories this week, but let's stay with that point about inflation. So OPEC have um, essentially called for the status quo to remain when it comes to oil production because they feel that the use of oil is going to be up to almost 100% of where it was before the pandemic by the end of the year, which strikes me as remarkable, but obviously is going to have its own effect on, uh, on where inflation goes. Yes, it strikes me as remarkable as well and overly optimistic. They are the experts in this rather than myself, although it is worth noting that those same experts started an oil price war just before the pandemic hit. And that was going to create problems of its own, even not taking into account the pandemic. I'm not obviously criticising them for not foreseeing this. None of us did. Uh, But they said that they think that it's going to get up to 97% of pre-pandemic levels. I find that extremely hard to believe, especially with the kind of spikes in the COVID numbers that we're seeing, the impact that it's having on air travel already. You look at the quarantine measures that have been imposed. Um, the IEA uh, have a, a slightly uh, different uh, view on this as well. But OPEC, more importantly, or OPEC Plus, the group of OPEC Plus, other non-OPEC members, including Russia, are taking a very slow and steady approach. They've seen that US production has fallen quite considerably now, uh, and they are taking a slow and steady approach. They previously cut production by 9.7 million barrels a day. That was taking around 10% off of global oil supply. 
they've increased that now by 2 million barrels. So there's still 7.7 .7 million barrels a day, shy of uh, their pre-pandemic uh, levels. And I think they're going to be very cautious. And ultimately, what they decided at this meeting uh, this week was that they are going to take a, a very cautious approach. They're not going to change uh, they're not going to change this uh, at this moment in time. They're going to see where they are in September. They're having a, a meeting around the same time uh, next month. And that effectively what they're going to do in that time is just continue to monitor. And if they see a reason that if they see a reason uh, to raise production again, then they will do so. But until then, there's just going to be a few countries whose output is going to rise slightly. And the only reason for that is to offset uh, effectively the the levels that they that they didn't meet uh, after the last production cut. So we're talking about a slight increase from Iraq, Nigeria, Angola, and Kazakhstan. Uh, but broadly speaking, it's going to be at a cut of 7.7 .7 million barrels a day for uh, at least uh, an, another month. And as we know, the, the, the situation with the pandemic, it's evolving every day. We're, we've seen now quarantine measures imposed from the UK, for example, on uh, France, on Spain, on Croatia as of this weekend. And it wouldn't surprise me if other countries going to follow, given the spikes that we're now seeing in Germany and in Italy and, uh, and other countries as well. Uh, this is all going to have an impact on demand. And if we see further economic restrictions being imposed in these countries with spikes, then again, this is going to take its toll as well. This is an ever-evolving story, uh, unfortunately, and we can only hope that these second spikes are far less severe each and every time. Well, where do you actually see Europe at the moment? Because as well as those uh, record infection rates in places like Germany and France um, in the last few days, we've also seen some fairly ropey PMI data coming out of the continent. I would say that it's only going to get worse if more people have to go back into lockdown and if more people are infected. Yeah, so I think there's a few different angles really to take on this. One is the fact that the, one of the reasons why we've seen these numbers pull back is because the the initial bounce after the once the factories and the shops started reopening was quite extreme. You had all this almost this pent up demand uh, that had to be used up, uh, and and that it, that that had a positive impact on these figures. Obviously, once you start to see that fade, then it starts that that has the the, the opposite impact as well. Obviously, then you've had the kind of second surges and that's going to create a little bit of uncertainty. The employment aspect of the report as well suggested that that, that people are being laid off. So that's a concern for the for the coming months for the region. We could see a, a spike in unemployment as well. Uh, if these figures, um, if the indication from these figures prove to be accurate, obviously it's going to be a challenging period. The one thing I'd always say with the PMIs is they're an extremely volatile reading. So they can be uh, dramatically different from month to month. The UK's figures, for example, were very good uh, but then we're almost it feels like a month behind Europe because we were late going into lockdown we were later coming out of lockdown so maybe we're still seeing that kind of uh, post lockdown bounce uh, so maybe next month we'll start to see a similar impact uh, here in the UK uh, so it they're very volatile uh, I think that's what I'd say I think probably speaking Europe's going to be looking at the situation and saying they're still relatively comfortable with how everything's progressing yes we're seeing a spike in numbers that was inevitable when you when you uh, remove the lockdown measures what you want to see is how well that can be controlled how quickly it can be controlled and also who's being affected by it because if the infections are rising more so as we're seeing amongst uh, the younger population and therefore the hospital rates are still low and the death rates is much lower as a result, then there will be more and more lessons to learn uh, uh, over the course of the next few months in terms of what it is that we can and can't do. Now, 
The latest round of Brexit negotiations have just completed. Both sides are briefing to the media that nothing has changed and it's all the other side's fault. I think it's actually worth just reminding ourselves where we are here. So the UK left the EU at the um, end of January. This is the transition period. This is about what happens next. And really, we're talking about the same issues that we have for a few years. What happens with fishing? Um, How closely aligned are the UK and the EU on regulations for various industries? Can um, the UK subsidise its industries? Um, And these are big technical issues that really are never going to be solved by negotiators. This needs political intervention. I suppose I'm asking the both sides, the politicians, have bigger things to worry about right now. Do you see that kind of intervention coming to actually break the logjam? Yeah, I mean, I do. I think a no-deal solution was always the worst solution uh, even to begin with and that was before the pandemic and before we had the economic consequences which come with that it's an even worse solution now for both sides from a purely economic standpoint uh, so I do think there is going to be event intervention uh, eventually I think obviously you called it last week the, the, this was never going to be as straightforward as saying Monday we're going to discuss fisheries and level playing field Friday we've done it we've drawn a line under it now we can move on to the easy parts of the agreement it was never going to move like that there's always going to be disagreements and there's always going to be certain things which going to be left to the end mm. and then you start to almost pair them off and try and make try and come to uh, a negotiated agreement on the various issues and you can see which ones are going to be in that kind of ballpark the UK seems optimistic that a deal can still be reached in uh, in September the EU has said uh, that they are that, that a deal has to be reached by the end of October in order to give it time to be ratified across the 27 other governments and obviously the European Parliament so naturally there's going to be crunch talks in November um, between Boris Johnson and uh, and whoever else uh, to try and get these final uh, issues sorted out. The UK, I believe, has tried to kind of offer a kind of draft uh, a fair trade agreement with the EU and has passed that on to Michel Barnier today, although it's not been confirmed. Uh, to try and break the deadlock. That doesn't seem to have been taken particularly well because as far as the EU is concerned, it's these other hard issues that need to be resolved before we can move on to the other things. So again, it's it's the same old story, let's face it. We've been saying these exact same things for almost four years now. I don't think I'm alone in thinking, like you, that there will be a deal by the end of the year. I suppose my interest is in how politicians and also, I suppose, the, the general public distinguish between a good deal and a bad deal. I mean, we're talking about incredibly complicated issues. How will we know that we've actually got something worthwhile here? I don't think we will. I think um, I, I think both sides will sell any eventual deal as a good deal because it's not in any of their political interests to say that we've got a raw deal out of this. Both sides will probably claim that they've got a slightly better deal than the other side, and I think that's probably going to be particularly... Uh, true from the European side because the last thing they want to do is say the UK voted to leave, we've negotiated for a long time and they've got a cracking deal Uh, so whatever happens I I think they'll want to perceive this to be they've got a decent deal under the circumstances but it's not as good as actually being a member and 
and I think the people who voted for Brexit all those years ago will see anything as a good deal because in their eyes they'll have left the European Union, uh, they'll have got all of the freedoms which come with uh, leaving the European Union, like striking free trade deals um, uh, and like having control over their own legal system, etc., etc., uh, and that that everyone will kind of walk away and say, to be honest, whether I like this or loathe it, I'm just glad it's over. And let's move on with our lives because I think a lot of people have been waiting to move on with their lives for an awfully long time. And granted, we've said before... But do you think that the end of this year um, and the signing of whatever deal is done will be the end of the matter? No, I don't. But I think once the UK has left uh, the EU and... Uh, and a no-deal Brexit has been avoided, then as far as most of the general public on both sides of the water are concerned, that's effectively a line drawn under it. And then it's for uh, lawmakers all over the, the, the EU and in the UK to 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 deal with the other more uh, less interesting pieces that uh, ensure that any agreement uh, functions to, to ensure that any disputes are resolved uh, properly as per the whatever mechanisms are agreed in the interim. I think from a public perspective, it's effectively done and dusted when the EU, when the UK leaves the EU with a deal in place. Um, and after that, it's, it's just not going to be something of interest anymore. Let's stick with the politics and move now to the US. We've had the Democratic National Convention um, in Delaware this week, a very odd affair because of coronavirus, politicians and their supporters speaking in a... Uh, a darkened and empty convention hall compared to um, the, the the rallies and uh, party atmosphere that you would perhaps get in uh, previous years. Um, but we've heard now from uh, Joe Biden, the uh, Democrat Party uh, presidential candidate and his vice presidential um, nominee, um, Kamala Harris. And then next week, we will be hearing from President Trump at the Republicans convention. It feels as though we've been watching this political battle for years now it's almost hard to believe that the election is nearly upon us um is this of any interest i suppose in terms of you and markets or is it merely a sideshow at this point i think it is uh, i think it's certainly of interest i think the the pandemic overshadows everything so unfortunately it just becomes maybe slightly less uh, of a big deal than you would otherwise think and i think also from a market's perspective uh it, it's funny the it's interesting the view that's be seems seems to be taken towards uh biden compared to what may have previously been taken you're almost seeing a kind of uh, fatigue potentially uh, with this kind of ongoing spat with China, the ongoing uncertainty it causes, and and I think the you, the more you're hearing a lot more noises now, uh, and it's always difficult to tell until after the election what people actually think. But the, you're hearing a lot more noises now of do you know what Biden wouldn't be such a bad thing. Yes, he'd raise corporation taxes, and yes, he'd probably raise taxes for the highest earners, but you would bring a, a certain amount of stability uh, with that which we haven't had now for what for, for the last four years so what that tells me is that regardless of who wins this election there may not be too severe an impact on the markets and i may be wrong because it was only four years ago that people were saying that a Trump victory could be very negative for the markets because of the trade wars, because of uh, everything else that comes with the Trump presidency. And the immediate response in the markets was a big sell-off. 
And within 24 hours, that had reversed course. And we've all seen what's happened in the stock market since. It's amazing what cutting taxes will do for a stock market rally. Uh, so it, it's always going to be difficult to say. Uh, again, you could look at maybe it's some of the more intricate things, which is going to have a greater impact. For example, will the Democrats get the Senate? If Joe Biden wins, if Joe Biden, if, if the Democrats effectively sweep the uh, sweep the presidency and uh, the House and uh, 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 and the Senate, then you could see maybe a slightly stronger reaction because there's more that they will be able to do. Mm. Uh, whereas a split Congress may satisfy the markets a little bit more because it means that Biden will be a bit a little bit more hamstrung. It's always going to be difficult to say at this point and also like so this is coming against the backdrop of a pandemic which is overarching uh, no matter what the issue. Before I let you go, Craig, what are we looking ahead to next week? Yeah, so next week, again, it's a little bit quiet in terms of these kind of major economic events. Uh, we've got a, load, a lot of low and medium tier economic data. I think the standout event next week is probably the Jackson Hole Symposium. It's going to be virtual this year round for obvious reasons. So um, you may see a little bit less of the, 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 kind of, uh, the kind of thing that we typically see around the actual event itself. And there's going to be a lot more focus around what certain policymakers are going to say. The, you've got, for example, uh, Andrew Bailey from the Bank of England speaking. The, the headline event is always going to be the Fed chair speaking. So that's going to be Jerome Powell, I think, on Thursday and on Friday. So we're going to see a lot of focus on that. And given how active central banks have been uh, over the course uh, of this pandemic and how important they've been as a, as a backbone of, the, uh, of, this entire of these entire financial markets, uh, I think people are going to be following these very closely. Um, as we already saw this week, for example, the Fed minutes were pretty we're not too out there there wasn't anything too extreme that happened in these minutes but it did have um, probably an outsized market impact under the circumstances and it shows the kind of sensitivity that we have to central banks still uh, but I think that's that's the major uh, one for uh, next week we've got to remember we are still in the summer it's been a quite a slow week already this week so far um, like I say a few a few minutes from the RBA the the ECB and the Fed, there wasn't really anything too much to take away from there. And the data wasn't really knockout, like I said, same for next week. The biggest story this week was Apple hitting $2 trillion, which is a monumental moment in itself. But uh, as I said earlier with the kind of UK and the numbers thing, it's nothing fundamentally changes when these, when these, uh, when these landmarks are hit. But you can always tell what you can. It's always a gauge of how, what, what's happening that week when it's as big a story as it is. Craig, let's leave it there. Always a pleasure speaking with you. That's Craig Earlham, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, available from iTunes and anywhere you get podcasts. I'm Nick Howard. Join us again when we speak next week. was the Oanda podcast from the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.